as I was walking up. Paddy Ben said, there's one copy of the Cross of Christ left on the bookstall. He said, the bookstall has closed, so it's not available for sale. Oh, that's a shame. Um, so Paddy had a great idea. Paddy has great ideas. It's fantastic having him here at the EU. Uh, he serves us wonderfully by having more ideas than breaths, which is quite an achievement. <laughs> Paddy said, hey, we should auction this one off. <laughs> now, seriously, why would I auction off a book? Like, that's crazy, right? Let's auction it off and the money will go to Campus 2010, right? So you actually, you're doing, you get two things here. You get a great book that's well worth reading, but you also get to contribute financially to the extension of Jesus' reign and rule at Sydney University. So we're going to auction this off for real. Now, this is for real money, not monopoly money, okay? <laughs> this is real money, and we say, yep, but the money's going to go to Campus 2010, you up for it? $2.05. Sit down, Matt Hill, and now your name is forever on the MP3, because that's outrageous. <laughs> okay. Who wants to contribute? Let, 20 bucks. Thank you. 25. 30. 35. 40, I heard. Fifteen? That doesn't work. You've got to go up. Oh, sorry, I didn't explain that before. Thirty-five are we at? Fifty. Sixty. Eighty. One hundred from Hugh. Hundred and ten? One twenty. 130. 130. 155. 170. Let's close it out here. If we're serious, let's go for it. Let's get it out. You got it. That's it. That's you. One, two, three. You. It's you. Two ten. All right. Paddy, reckon we get at least six hundred. I said you're dreaming. You're dreaming. Okay, friends. Uh, it's Friday morning. No doubt you're feeling a little bit weary, but I hope you're also um, full of genuine joy in the Lord Jesus, because it's him that we've been learning about, focusing on this week. So if you can open up your booklets, find the page for Talk 6, I'm going to lead us in prayer and we'll get underway.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to the world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we meet him in your written word in the scriptures, that he is livened in our hearts by your spirit. And we pray that as we turn again to your word, that you might lead us into the truth as you have promised, so we might love you more, serve you with more zeal, and bring glory to your name and that of your son. Amen. Well, what is the most objectionable claim of Jesus today? I think it is this. When in John 14, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, says Jesus, you will know my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. I suspect this is the most objectionable truth of Jesus today, that he is the only way of salvation. There's six factors, I think, that weight this issue that makes Jesus' claim to be the only way harder and harder to accept in this world. So let's feel the weight of the objections to Jesus' claim. First of all, there's an existential problem. That is, there is a huge number of unsaved people in the world. The statistics we looked at the other night, at their most optimistic, their most sort of inclusive, they say 35% of the world's population claim the name of Jesus. That leaves 65%, that is most of the people living today in the world, approximately three and a half billion people aren't followers of Jesus. There's a theological problem. We say that the character of our God is that he is love. How can he permit this situation where so many people are lost and facing his wrath? There's the pluralist problem. See, the age of Christendom, the age where Christianity was the dominant worldview, at least in Western society, it's over. We have, as a society, a much greater awareness now of other religions. In fact, as a pluralist society, I think that today we're much closer in many ways to the very first century, which was pluralist. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8, indeed, even though there are even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods, many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. In Paul's own day, there were many gods, many lords who abounded in the world. You remember when he was in Athens in Acts 17? He was deeply troubled in his gut, the Bible says when he saw that the city was overwhelmed with idols, gods who aren't gods. And frankly, is Athens any di different to Sydney today? There's not little idols on every street corner, but it's the idols that are cemented in our hearts. Is Sydney any different? Is Darwin 
Is Florence? Is Indonesia? Are we really saying in the midst of all those other religions, all those other faiths, all those other beliefs, that Jesus is the only way? There's the enlightenment problem. See, we're talking about religion, and religion since the age of the enlightenment is a private truth. It's true for you, but that does not mean, apparently, that your faith is necessarily objective for anyone else. But when we say, oh, Jesus is the only way, we're making a public claim about what is thought to be only a private truth, and there's a clash there. There's the postmodern problem. See, postmodernism is suspicious of what's called meta narratives. Anything that claims to be the overarching narrative or truth that, that trumps over all others. So the postmodernists would say that any such meta narrative is actually an attempt at squashing other viewpoints and truths in an imperialistic and totalizing sort of way. So when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and life, no one comes to the Father except through me, for a postmodernist, such an exclusive claim is immediately suspect. And finally, we have the relational problem. See, I think the biggest value in Australia today is tolerance. I think the way we've got to that, having that value, is that postmodernism relativism, pluralism and multiculturalism, they have all impacted into our contemporary societal conscience and what's come out the other end is this commitment to tolerance. And I don't think many people actually are postmodern. They're not genuine pluralists. But we have bought the end product. We're committed at least in our public discourse to this value of tolerance. But what tolerance means when we use it that way is not, look, I'll allow you to hold your views and I will not discriminate against you because you hold those views, which is what tolerance you think would mean. Tolerance now means, look, you're not allowed to tell anyone else that their views, especially on religion, which is essentially private, are wrong. If you say someone else's religious views are wrong, that's not tolerant apparently. So it's interesting in our society, you can be a Christian, you can be a Muslim, you can be a Hindu, but the only religious view that you're allowed to express in public discourse is that, well, really, we're all the same. It really has no implications for anyone else other than myself, which means it doesn't really matter in any way that's sort of objective or public. You're allowed to make that sort of religious statement. But anything else, that's not tolerant. So Leslie Newbigin, who's a Christian, who worked for many, many years as a missionary in India, he's now gone to glory. Uh, He put society's objection, when he came back from spending decades in India and came back into, uh, I think he went to the UK, he wrote some books about re-looking at Western society with the fresh eyes that he had from having served Jesus in another culture for so many decades. And he captured contemporary Western society's objection this way. This is how he thinks society works. He says, 
in a world threatened with nuclear war. Now, he's writing 20 years ago, right? So the Cold War was still a big deal. In a world threatened with nuclear war, a world facing a global ecological crisis, a world more and more closely bound together in its cultural and economic life, the paramount need is for unity. And an aggressive claim on the part of one of the world's religions to have the truth for all can only be regarded as treason against the human race. Even if it is granted that this exclusive claim has been the claim of the church throughout 19 centuries, we must face the fact that it is not now tenable. What he's saying is what we need from a humanist secular point of view, what we need is unity in the world. That's the key. And if one of the world's dominant religions is going to claim to be the only way, that's going to, that's going to lose our opportunity for unity. That's treason, really, against what we need. So it doesn't matter that the church has claimed it for 1900 years when he wrote this. They need to get rid of that claim because that's actually working against what we need. That's the relational problem. It causes division, this claim. So for all of those reasons, accepting that Jesus really is the only way is challenging, it's confronting and often difficult. And I say, if you can't see that, if you don't, if you don't have a sense of that, of just how difficult it is for people to, to grasp Jesus' exclusive claim, then I don't think you're really trying to understand where non-Christians are coming from. And that's going to make it harder and harder for you actually to speak with them about Jesus. So how have people grappled with Jesus' claim to be the only way? Here's three different responses. First of all, exclusivism. Jesus alone at the centre. You see there in the, in the diagram, and it's written over to the left, Jesus Christ is the definitive revelation from God and the only one in whom is salvation. This is the exclusivist position. He's the only one in whom is salvation and only those who have put their explicit faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. The exclusive position says not only that Jesus is the only way of salvation, but you have to have, you have, to have explicit faith in Jesus if you're going to be saved. So see in the diagram, if you're within that circle of people who, say, who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, you're saved. But if you're outside that circle, if you have no faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then no, you, you do not have access to salvation, apart from explicit faith. There is a, 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 um, a slight variant on this that, that uh, some put forward, which I've called there the strict exclusivist position, plus some maybes with a question mark. That is, this view says Jesus Christ is the definitive revelation from God and the only one in whom is salvation, so the centres are the same, and those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved, those who've rejected him as Lord won't be saved, and there's a possible question mark over some of those who've never heard. So Chris Wright, who's written on this, explains, he says, those who hold this position wish to leave open the possibility that God may save some through Christ, some who, while never having heard of Christ, turn to God in some kind of repentance and faith that only God can evaluate with his intimate knowledge of the human heart. And there's a few tragic cases in point which, 
which may give you some idea of what situations we're talking about. What about the case of those who just can't respond for themselves? The, the terrible, tragic cases of those who die while still a young baby or those who are mentally incapable of making sort of an active, explicit faith response to Jesus. What about those people? Is there, is there no opportunity for those people because of their particular circumstances where they never could have made a faith response to Jesus? That means they can't be saved at all? Or might it be just, and it's only a question mark, might it be that God may, in his ability to evaluate their human heart, he would know whether or not they have made some sort of faith response to him, even if they've never grasped Jesus. I'm not saying there there's another track to salvation. I'm just recognising that there might be isolated cases or exceptions where due to circumstances, grasping Jesus isn't an option. But possibly God could be at work in such people such that they have responded to him, the true God, in some sort of faith or repentance. Well, that's the exclusive position. But another way people have grappled with Jesus' claim is known as inclusivism. Jesus is inclusively at the centre. So you see there a diagram I've tried to represent it. At the centre, Jesus Christ is the most true revelation from God and the only one in whom is salvation. Yet, this view holds, God's truth is seen in other faiths and the salvation that is specially in Jesus is available to faithful adherents of other religions. So again, Chris Wright outlines the difference here for us between the inclusive and the exclusive position. What he says is, exclusivism and inclusivism are in agreement that Christ is the supreme and final revelation of God and that he is the one through whom ultimately people can and will be saved. However, whereas the exclusivist says that if Jesus alone is the truth and the saviour, then that excludes all other faiths as vehicles of truth or salvation, the inclusivist argues that ultimately all truth is God's truth wherever it is found. So Christ, who is the truth, must therefore include all that is true in other faiths. Whatever truth and goodness we can discern in other faiths must be attributed to Christ, who was in some way present and active within them, though in hidden ways. The exclusivist would draw a fairly sharp and unbroken line between the Christian faith and all other religions. The inclusivist would see a more soft, broken and porous line between them with many points of common truth. So it's saying Jesus is the only way of salvation. How other, other religions, if they have elements of truth in them and people are faithful in that religion, then because all truth is Jesus' truth, then surely they would be saved too, through Jesus. Because they've responded in faith to the truth they had access to. That's the inclusive... Does anyone hold that position? Well, yes. So the Anglican Board of Mission and Unity in the UK speaks about combining an inclusive approach to other faiths with an exclusive loyalty to Jesus. 
So yes, this is a view that's out there, that's, that's being held and propagated. But there's a third way people have grappled with Jesus' claim to be the only way. Pluralism. Jesus is actually just one way among many. And so at the centre here, you don't have Jesus. Jesus is not at the centre in this view. What we have rather is at a deep level, the belief that all religions are the same. And that while the divine is encountered in Jesus, it is not only encountered in him. He is one of many, not the centre. Jesus is just one planet orbiting the great centre, which is the divine, transcendent, numinous God. And Jesus is one way of access in the pluralist understanding. So, consequently, there are many genuinely different roads, apparently, to salvation. So, again, Leslie Newbigin summarises the view of much of our society. It's not his own personal view as a Christian. But he thinks society is saying, look, the church must have the courage to recognise a new fact, recognise that God's grace is at work with undiscriminating generosity among all peoples and in all the great religious traditions. And therefore, the church must abandon the claim to be the sole possessor of the truth. Well, that's a bit tricky, isn't it? How can the church, how can we as followers of Jesus, hold on to Jesus but let go of his claim to be the only way? How could you do that? That doesn't make sense. No, some people think you can do that. In fact, liberal theology says you can do that. So Marcus Borg actually thinks that Jesus' claim to be the only way doesn't really mean be the only way. So see what you think of his explanation here. Borg writes, To affirm that Jesus is the decisive revelation of God does not require affirming that he is the only or only adequate revelation of God. Passages like John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, no one comes to the Father except for me. Passages like John 14 need not to be understood to mean that Jesus or Christianity is the only way of salvation. Instead, we might understand them as reflecting the joy of having found one's salvation through Jesus and the intensity of Christian devotion to Jesus, they should be understood as exclamations, not doctrines, and as the poetry of devotion and the hyperbole of the heart. So decisive need not mean only, but the claim does mean that for us as Christians, Jesus is the decisive revelation of God and of what a life full of God is like. If we found the decisive revelation of God in the Torah or in the Quran, then we would be Jews or Muslims. But to be Christian, he says, is to affirm here in Jesus, I see more clearly than anywhere else what God is like. This affirmation can be made, he says, with one's whole heart, while still affirming that God is also known in other traditions. So what he's saying there is that when Christians, as we say, Jesus is the only way, what we really mean is Jesus is the only way for me. Here is the one in whom I have found God's decisive revelation and salvation. 
But when I say he's the only way, that's actually more poetry than actual. It's the poetry of devotion to him. It's the hyperbole of my joy in finding my salvation. He's the, it's like he's the only way. Oh, of course he's not. I mean, yes, for you and for you, you have your ways, but, but for me, he's the only way. That's the pluralist attempt to grapple with Jesus' outrageous claim to be the only way. Well, how are we going to assess these three attempts? Which is right and why? How are we going to work it out? Well, as always, we work it out by searching the scriptures. We turn to the word of God for wisdom and insight. And we must measure these attempts against the truth of God's word in the scriptures. So we're going to do that very briefly by looking at some passages out of Romans. And because the five P's were so popular yesterday, I've got six U's. But I've actually listed them all for you. So there's no guessing today. Six U's as we sort of march through Romans a little bit in order to assess which of these three views is right. First U, what does Romans teach us here? What does God teach us through Romans? First U is universal accountability. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. For what can be known about God, writes Paul, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he made. So they are without excuse. God can and will hold all people accountable for their response to him. It doesn't matter whether they're in the least reached corner of the globe doesn't matter if they're sitting in Manning or Wentworth or home building. I mean, Wentworth, for goodness sake, very ends of the earth. Doesn't matter where they sit. Doesn't matter what language they speak, what nation they're in, what race they're from, what religion they hold. All are without excuse because God has made himself known to all. His divine nature, his eternal power. How has he done that? Through what he's made. We all have access to the same creation, God's creation. So there is no one with any excuse, universal accountability. But tragically, there's also universal culpability. Let's just, the very next verse, Romans 1.21. For though they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. See, the great tragedy is that though God's divine nature and his eternal power are on permanent display through his creation to all his creatures, people have not honoured him or given thanks to him. So there's universal access, but there's also universal culpability. We're all guilty of not treating God as God not honouring him as God in our lives. So another way of saying that is that there's been universal failure. Romans 3, 22 and 23. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Those are the universals that the Bible teaches. It doesn't teach universal salvation. 
The Bible teaches universal accountability, universal culpability and universal failure. What there is, is a universal need for salvation. But Paul goes on immediately in the very next verse in Romans 3 to speak of the particularity of the Christian faith. There might be universal need for salvation, but he focuses then in on the Lord Jesus. Because he says here there is unmerited grace through Christ. Romans 3.24 They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. So two things to note there that help us sort out exclusivism, exclusivism, inclusivism and pluralism. Two things that actually help us distinguish. First, verse 24, justification comes how? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is at the centre. Pluralism has it wrong. Jesus Christ is at the centre. He's not a way to God. He is the propitiation that God put forward to enable our reconciliation with himself by grace. But the second thing to note is the end of verse 25. This redemption comes how? It's effective through faith. Through faith in this Jesus. Faith in other gods, faith in other religions, those are not the means by which Christ's sacrifice is made effective. It's only effective through faith in this Jesus who died and rose again. So inclusivism doesn't work either. There isn't salvation through even well-meant adherence to other religions. Despite whatever good things those religions may or may not say, there is no salvation in that, no redemption in that, because redemption is secured in Christ and only comes, it's only effective through faith in Christ. But the good news of that is actually, whilst there is an exclusive road to salvation, it is actually a road that's open to anyone. Whatever nation, whatever culture, race or religion you might have held, there is now an unprejudiced salvation. So Romans 10, 12 to 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. And is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Salvation comes through this Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an exclusive door to salvation, but it's a door that is genuinely open to all who call on him. So exclusivism is the biblical understanding of what Jesus means when he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Pluralism has got it wrong. It doesn't match up to the scriptures. Inclusivism has it wrong. It doesn't match up to the scriptures. Exclusivism is the position, the understanding of what Jesus means that gets it, I think, biblically accurate. But the problem with the diagram, not a problem, the weakness of the diagram I gave you for exclusivism is it it can seem, ah, so if you're outside the circle, that's it. If you're inside the circle, well, lucky you. Well, that's not what the Bible says, is it? It doesn't say, if you're outside the circle, bad luck. 
As we saw last night, the whole reason Jesus not yet appeared again is he's patiently waiting for people who are outside the circle to accept his generous offer of salvation and actually cross the line. Step into the circle. That's the offer. It's open to anyone to enter into this salvation through faith in Jesus. But what all that means, as we saw Wednesday night and as again we saw last night, is that this truth that Jesus is the only way of salvation, what that means is there is an unambiguous need now for Jesus to be proclaimed. So Hugh read out this passage the other day, Romans 10, 14, 15. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in one in, of whom they have not, never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It probably is the only way my feet will ever be called beautiful. <laughs> is if I bring the good news of Jesus. See, an implication of Jesus being the only way is that people need to know about him. On our campus, in your street, in our communities, around Australia, at CDU in Darwin, in Florence, how are they going to believe in the one of whom they've never heard? How are they here without someone to proclaim him? How are they going to proclaim unless they're sent? Where might God send you? Where might God send us? As the EU in 2010. It might be the very place where you are at the moment. Your very neighbourhood. Your very workplace. Your very campus. It might be down the track many other places. In Sydney, Australia, the world. But if Jesus really is exclusively at the centre then people need to hear of him. And how great is it that we have an opportunity this semester, in just a few weeks' time, to proclaim Jesus with great spirit-inspired boldness to our campus, through Campus 2010. It is a privilege that we get to do this in freedom. It is a remarkable opportunity and what's more, by God's grace, with the, with the number of people that we are, we can do things, we can proclaim Christ in ways that other campuses in our country they just wouldn't be able to do because they just don't have as many people. There are, praise God, one of us for every 50 students at Sydney Uni. And it's less if you just think about full-time undergrads. It's remarkable access So we have a remarkable opportunity. We need to praise God for it. And we need to grab hold of it this semester. Well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to proclaim him? Look, I'm just going to skip over the next section on communicating Jesus' claims. But you can read that sometime yourself. Helpful book um, on proclaiming Christ in a postmodern culture. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a useful article in there. I've got some stuff there for you on the page. Let Some quotes from Leslie Newbigin as well. On what it means to communicate the truth in a postmodern sort of setting. But let's just move on. Let's jump down to point D. Embracing Jesus' claim. 
to be the only way, to be the truth, to be the life. And the point is simply this. If Jesus is the only way, truth and life, then friends, he stands at the very centre of our life together and of your life individually as a follower of him. He has to be at the centre, doesn't he? He has to be the very centre of your life, not just because of what he's done for you, not just because of what he will do for you, though each morning you look in the mirror and you look back and you look forward, but that's not the reason he's at the centre. He's at the centre because of who he is. That he is Lord. He is one with the Father and the Spirit. He is the one we worship. He stands unchallenged at the centre. And John Stott wrote a little book reflecting on this truth. And it's, it's an old book, but it's just been republished as uh, under the title... Uh, life in Christ, and he structured the book around the different prepositions the New Testament uses to explain how life revolves around Jesus. Now, uh, English students go, sometimes go to me, oh, this is cool, prepositions, man, that's, that's where the action is. <laughs> and everyone else sort of goes, prepositions, I really don't know what that is at all. So a preposition, it's those Little words, in, with, through, by, for. I'm sure there's a technical explanation for what they was, but if I knew it, I'd tell you, and then that, that probably wouldn't help you or me either. So they're the little words that communicate the relationships between things. So in his introduction, John Stott says this. He says, in themselves, prepositions are insignificant little words, but they can also be signposts to profound theological truths. At all events, many prepositions are pressed into service in the New Testament to portray the richness of a Christian's relation to Christ. Our relationship to Christ is thus displayed as a multifaceted diamond of great beauty. What he's saying is when Jesus is there, as he must be, standing at the centre, and we explore all the ways that we are he, that he is at the centre for our lives, it is wonderful to behold. And so what I've given you there is just his chapter headings. And if that sort of just, if it starts to whet your appetite to go away and read your New Testament and find these sort of truths, find these prepositions, because you'll start noticing them everywhere or read his book, that would be a great thing. So let me run through them. Through Christ our mediator, we come to God only through the work of this Jesus. He is our only mediator. We live on Christ, our foundation. He's the ground on which we stand. He's the support on which we rely. He's the foundation on which we build. We rest on his finished work. We rely on his promises. We live on his commands and teaching. We live in Christ, our life giver. Our life is entirely in Christ, in our union with him. We died with him, we've been raised with him, we live by faith in him. It's given us a new status, children of God. It's given us new blessings. We have every spiritual blessing the New Testament says, in him. It's drawn us into a new community, into being a member of his body. We are in him as his people. We live under Christ, our Lord. 
We live with Christ, our secret, by which he means we've been seated. A secret is something that is going to be revealed. And you remember that verse we saw last night. When Christ is revealed, you will be revealed with him in glory because we've been seated with Christ now in the heavenly places. That's the status we have. But one day we will be revealed with him as well. We live unto Christ or, or to Christ, our goal. He's the focus of how we live. We live for Christ, our lover. He loved us, gave himself for us to purify us, to be a people for himself, who then reflect his love for us in our love for him and to all those around. We live for Christ, our lover. We live like Christ, our model. He is at the absolute centre of all of our life. Our life takes its bearing, its meaning, its significance, its purpose, its plans from him and for him and to him and in him and with him and like him and he's at the absolute centre. So is he there for you? Have you reorientated your life? Re, have you, are you revolving always and only around him as you move through life. What, how do we then respond to Jesus' claim? Jesus claimed to be the only way. And here's the revealing reality moment for this morning. The reality is that it is Jesus who we need, who our world needs, who our campus needs and our friends need. That's the reality. There is no other truth that they need more than this. There is no other saviour that they can have other than him. There is no other Lord who exists than him. And there is no hope for me, for you, for our friends, for this world, than what can be found only in him. This is Jesus. So as we close out, what do we do? We love him. We love him. Because he first loved us. And the New Testament says, if you love him, and Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. To love him expresses itself in many ways, but one of those ways is that you live for him. You live for him in obedience to his word, in purity, in repentance when you stuff up, in receiving his forgiveness. But you love him and you live for him. As we saw last night, it means you long for him. You long for his appearing, the fulfilment of all his promises, 
the consummation of the great kingdom of God that Jesus himself came to bring about. You long for him. And you say, come Lord Jesus. And finally, you laud him. That's L-A-U-D, if you're listening on the MP3. You laud him. Well, it's an old-fashioned word. It means that you um, proclaim his greatness. You proclaim his greatness. You honour him publicly. How do you laud him? How do we do that? Well, we do it in words, as we've seen. We do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And uh, that's not easy. We know that. Leslie Newbigin acknowledges this isn't very easy in a pluralist culture. He says there, it's not easy to resist the contemporary tide of thinking and feeling which seems to sweep irresistibly in the direction of an acceptance of religious pluralism and away from any confident affirmation of the absolute sovereignty of Jesus Christ. It's not easy to challenge the reigning plausibility structure. It's much easier to conform. You feel that, right? Sitting there in a lab, sitting there in a lecture or in a tute, where some, some remark is made from the front or just around you about those stupid Christians wearing those stupid hoodies. <laughs> Serious. How much easier is it to just conform at that point and not say, yes, in him alone is life. Don't you want life? How much easier just to conform? But we laud him, we proclaim his greatness in words. We will not shy away because we know that in him alone is salvation. But also uh, we proclaim him in our response to him. And by this I mean a couple of things. The New Testament says, and maybe we don't focus on this very often, we proclaim him uh, through baptism and the Lord's Supper. There's a way in which by the things we do as Christians, when we gather together, we are proclaiming him, not just in word, but the things we do. So Paul says in Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Therefore we've been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism signifies that moment of dying with Christ and rising back to life. So when, when someone is baptised, not only is it them saying, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, it's actually symbolically, symbolically saying, I, by my faith, union with Christ in the Spirit, I've now died with Christ and I've, I'm alive again. In a way, we proclaim Jesus' death and resurrection there in the baptism. That's what you're doing. I, maybe you thought you were, they were just washing a forehead or going for a bit of a dip. We're actually testifying to what we believe happens when you have faith in Jesus, that you die with him and you rise to new life. And similarly in the Lord's Supper, Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we do it in our words, we do it 
in baptism, the Lord's Supper, and we do it in our life. Paul writes, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. What he's saying is, as you live as a follower of Jesus, and as you bear the sufferings, the persecution that comes, and friends, if we proclaim Christ on campus this semester persecution will come. My guess is it will be mild as mild. You know, it's not going to be... We're just blessed in Australia with great freedom. It's not going to be terribly severe. But there'll be derision. There'll be reaction if we actually proclaim Christ. And what Paul's saying here is as you proclaim Christ and as you live for him in the face of opposition... Both Jesus' death and his life are being proclaimed through your life at the same moment. So as you experience those sufferings, you proclaim his death. But as you persevere, as you're not turned away by those sufferings, as you persevere, you demonstrate the power of Jesus' life, that he was raised from dead. So as we go about proclaiming Jesus in words, as we do it in the face of persecution and suffering, as we go on with that task, we, even there we are proclaiming, yes, Jesus' death, Jesus died, but he was raised again in power. And in that same power, I am able, you are able, we are able, God's people all over the world are able to keep on proclaiming Christ because in him alone is salvation and no one will come to the Father except through him. So praise our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's wrap up with this as a prayer. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, Lord Jesus, and made us to be a kingdom priest serving his God and Father. To you, Lord Jesus, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.